0: We have Matthew Ryan with us here today. Matthew is with revive and you can find him and his team at revive. That's R E Viv.com. And I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes, but Matthew, you and I are going to be talking about co-living and this as an investment strategy here today. So this should be an interesting one.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: So I always got to start like, how did you find your way to this niche?
1: Yeah, I was introduced actually by my now architect. We were looking for projects in the Oakland market and he introduced me to a company called Open Door, not the iBuyer Open Door, but the actual co living operator here in in Oakland. And that was the first time that I was hip to the idea. I went and had tea in their co working in the back of their co working space on a place on the east side of Lake Merritt and met Ben Proven and Jay. And was really interesting what they were doing, and I love the philosophy and it fit within our thesis of innovative approaches to affordable housing, looking at ways that we could revitalize communities in a more thoughtful way that provides housing for this younger generation of people who are being blamed as gentrifiers, simply seeking affordable housing, and then obviously in some of these neighborhoods that are either minority or older, typical middle to lower class people who are in an aging housing stock. And now there's like this fierce competition, right? And that's the basis of reviving what we've been trying to tackle as a problem. And so it was just a really great fit for us. And once we dove into the runway that's there from a co-living product or affordable by design or micro apartment and the problems that these, that demographic is facing, that 22 to 35, it just kept checking boxes. We really try to focus on a strong why, issues that are facing the built environment, particularly real estate. And we just love that it's, if you, we feel like it solves so many problems and it gives us a very distinct competitive advantage.
0: Sure. So did you try any other investing strategies before you found this one?
1: Yeah. So I, the first thing, first real estate project that I ever did was house hacking We just bought a house, rented to friends, did minor upgrades. I did that twice. I bought a foreclosed duplex an up-and-coming neighborhood in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I started my construction company. That's considered value-add. And then I did a value-add deal in Sacramento. It was an 11-unit apartment building. We really were navigating that value-add strategy initially because it's a low barrier of entry and it fit within my construction experience and what I had done. The problem here in California is the level of rent control and how that kind of disrupts a value-add strategy. We were trying to take a sensitive strategy to that focused on tenant retention versus kicking everyone out and bolstering rents. We actually did that with our first value-add project where we focused on a, a tenant retention model. So how can we keep the existing tenants while also pairing the much-needed upgrades? And we were fairly successful. We retained 50% of the tenants in that 11-unit 11, that 11 building, which we were really excited about. But, you know... To me, rent control just the forced hand in a lot of that. It obviously helps solve some of the problems with respect to displacement, which I think is valuable. But in addition to that, when it comes to the real estate space, the value add market around the time that I started, like 15, 16, 17, it was already starting to get an incredibly crowded space and very difficult to find deals. And so it was around that time that we really started looking at co living as a product because it was neat, it was still new, and there wasn't a lot of people talking about it or looking at it. And so that was, I think that the key thing in any real estate investment strategy is trying to find, If you, I think there's an old saying, I forget who said it, it, when you find yourself in behind the herd, go the other direction. And that was very much where we were at on the value-add strategy.
0: So are you primarily acquiring single-family homes and turning them into these multi-living?
1: So that was the original purpose. Find a 2,500 to 4,000 square foot house, Victorian, obviously something with some architectural distinction, and in Oakland. There's no shortage of those. And using things like ADU laws, which we have here in California, you're typically doing structural retrofits. That's very common in earthquake zones. So you're always looking at an opportunity to get towards what we considered a four to 6,000 square foot house with 10 to 16 bedrooms. That was what we launched our initial strategy. And that was taking a page of some of the early successful properties that Open Door had renovated and done on a small scale Mm -hmm. for co-living. And then we were also looking at some industrial warehouses that we could do adaptive reuse have a mixed use component. There's a lot of industrial buildings in Oakland market that that kind of fit that bill. at six thousand to twelve thousand square feet. We're getting to twelve to fifty bedrooms. You could utilize elements of what Oakland has a, a live work code, which is basically paved that way for converting these industrial buildings to residential. And so that was our core strategy. That was what we focused on for about eighteen months. And we launched an opportunity zone because Oakland had a lot of opportunity zones. And because we were, these are very heavy value add projects, we could hit that. 100% basis improvement on ozones. So we're like, man, this is, this is going to be great. Like we're going we're gonna to hit a really strong cash on cash return, which you don't typically get in multifamily and West Coast mm-hmm. markets. But that was my first big lesson in real estate was, and we actually did it retroactively, of course, we were really struggling to get deals because the market was extremely competitive with fix and flippers on that smaller product type. And the we were just a little bit off. Sometimes we were like 150 grand off. And you're closing in seven to 10 days, no contingencies on these deals, right? With fix and flippers. And the thing that we realize is a lot of those guys, they're not really taking outside investment dollars. Some of these guys are pretty small shops and gals and they're just running their profit margin into these deals. When you really configure everything, it's like they're not making 18% GC profit and then the 20% real estate profit, which is standard in the industry or 15% for fix and flipping. They're melding those two profit margins together and making decent money, running a couple crews, doing three to four projects a year, but even though we were able to get a higher density and rent per square foot, we were like still butting heads and missing out on these deals. In addition to that, when we started, we're like, man, why are we? We're not getting enough deal volume. That was the other thing. Um, it, once we started looking and pulling past sales history and looking retroactively, we're like, man, there's just not enough volume to sustain this. That I've heard. Tons of different discussions as to how many deals you got to look at, and make offers on, right? Let's just say out of, out of twenty, you might write an offer and get really close to negotiating on two, right? You, you, two of those you don't even know if you're going to close because how many of you, you get in due diligence and something spooks you or doesn't look right or you can't negotiate terms. And that was the big, le- the other big lesson for me, and I encourage anyone in the investment space is if you're looking at a particular product type and you've got access to that data, don't just look at what's out there and what can I buy. Look, run into the port 18 to 24 months backward, look, thumb through those deals and really look at how much deal volume you have. And then you can really start to understand, hey, am I going to be spending my fighting over a very concentrated market of deals? Or are the deals that I'm looking at plentiful enough that I can just maybe scoop up one? Because as we all know, sometimes all it takes is one deal to really get kicked off and going. And so that was the issue that we ran into. And we, of course, kept going after that model. And where we really got a lot of success was post-pandemic when we, the last two purchases that we've done for value-add projects were actually residential buildings that had been converted to law offices or office, sometimes operated not within the updated planning use. And we're going to be converting them back to co-living. And so that was because of this under $5 million office market that because of work from home, an aging demographic in those, that office space, a lot of these people are legacy owners and they couldn't sell their buildings. They had substantial equity in these buildings, both owners, actually, that we purchased mm-hmm. them from. And so we were actually able to get in there and, uh, on a basis, including our improvement basis, get in a really low basis relative to call it a two to four unit or four to six unit multifamily building in these areas. And that's how we got started in our first Denver deal and our Sacramento deal. And I still think it's an interesting opportunity for us from a co-living perspective. We're looking to more ground up. This mm-hmm. is for us to prove, continue to prove ourselves. In this next phase of our business, continue to build out a track record, build a suit, co living, affordable by design projects is effectively where we're going.
0: Sure. Okay. So it must have been interesting. You're essentially buying these, you gave a couple examples there, buying these couple of places from lawyers. Did you find that transaction just as easy as any of the others, or was there you're dealing with lawyers as a seller?
1: Yeah. One of them was a lawyer, the other one was a professional consulting firm. Honestly, the transactions were fantastic because. Both of these buildings were actually historical, which oh, sure. for those of you who are looking to do a value add project, I wouldn't recommend taking a historical office building change of use. <laughs> you got to be careful. It's definitely been a humbling experience, but I always wanted, ever since I was a kid, I was just fascinated by historical buildings. Like I've always had a love for these things. And so I'm I'm getting my hard dose now. It's, but anyways, so yeah, they, these guys love these buildings. Like the guy I bought the building from in Denver, he moved across the street actually in another building that a very famous Denver architect constructed. He constructed our building and then constructed one across the street. He's renting an office. He'll call me. He's. We've had lunch together. He's invited me for ski passes for for my kids yeah. if we come out. He's like, He's also like one of the warmest, most hospitable people I've ever been around. Ricky, if you're, if you happen to be, (laughs) you will, we love you, man. You're awesome. And then the other guy, Matt, who we bought our building from in Sacramento. we were talking to the broker and the broker's assistant. And they were like, yeah, like Matt, like almost broke down in tears, like at the closing table, because he just loved this building so much. And it was just, it was a really fantastic transaction in both, both situations. And then I think it's just because of the historical element and the fact that these guys operated their offices for 10, 15, and I think with Ricky's case for 20 years. So it was like a really, it was a very like intimate connection that they had to the building. It was still very transactional and they were still just amazing people to deal with, to be honest. I was really lucky, to be honest.
0: What you mentioned earlier, maybe you just need to clarify that for me. So you're talking about ground up now is what you're focusing on. Are you building these from scratch and What is that? What does the footprint look like today? You mentioned four or 5,000 square feet and a ridiculous number of bedrooms. What are you building or what are you doing right
1: now? So, Denver project is going to be our proof of concept in Denver. We're still a fairly small boutique developer, right? We're still growing our LP base. We couldn't go out and raise five to $10 million into a ground up development project. We could, but we'd have to joint venture with something. We just don't have that experience on a value add and development's very different than value add, right? So Denver is cool because the office building came on a 15,000 square foot lot. So that facility is going to be nine, just nine bedrooms, fairly small, but a unique building. It has a very cool nature element to it, of course, built in 1886, historic landmark. And we are actually parceling off a lot next door. Because again, it was on a 15,000 square foot lot. And that was another niche of that transaction. That was like that piece of that real estate puzzle that no one was looking at. And we're going to be developing a duplex next door. 4,000 to 5,000 square feet. We may rent it as co-living. We may build it to sell it or condo it. We'll see. All based on how pro forma rents fall next door. So that's number one. Sacramento is an 8,000 square 8,500 square foot office building. That will be 21 co-living beds. It's three levels, so it'll be broken into three separate units, so to speak. And that one's there's no kind of additional piece to it. It's just a just exactly that an office to resi conversion. And when we talk about ground up development, there's really only a couple major players who are doing of institutional fifty to one hundred fifty co living beds. There's prominent level in LA. There's another developer who's doing it here in the Bay Area. They do more micro apartments. I and mean, then I think there's people at the national scale. So. For us, we really want to forge ahead and working in these niche serving neighborhoods just outside of urban cores and trying to find innovative ways that we can build in that 20 to 50 unit co-living space. Because we just, when you think about co-living and you think about or micro apartments or this 22 to 35 demographic, when you get to five, six stories, there's just not, there's not always a coolness factor. There's an amenity factor, right? There's not a coolness factor like a historical building. Or a low density three-story building with a courtyard and so on and so forth. So that's the niche that we're trying to stay within. But the complexities of converting an existing building, an existing building and a heavy renovation of 20 to 50% of the value back into it, it really pushes a lot of GCs. And at the end of the day, it's like you really are better suited just doing ground-up construction at that point. Build the mm-hmm. suit. And you can mix in a traditional multi-family product, studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms. In addition to your five or six bedroom co-living unit, right? Where you're furnishing the areas and so on and so forth. And so that's the broad vision for us. And that's just, we're using these value adds to continue to build out our track record experience in handling complex projects, navigating portions of real estate transactions, small scale develop to prove that we can be an effective developer.
0: Sure. You mentioned a couple of areas of the country that typically if somebody was getting into single family home investing. They may make a hard go of this, but you're doing this with multi, with, with this type of model. What type of returns are you seeing? If you don't mind me asking on, on on this, because like I said, it just wouldn't be possible otherwise.
1: Yeah. So we are targeting when we underwrite, it's a minimum 14% intro and a rate of return threshold with at least a four to 6% cash on cash stabilized at year five. That's what we're trying, just a hair below a two X equity multiple net to investors. So it could be one eight to two. And that's with a little bit of fudge factor. Okay. So when it comes to underwriting, it's got their bag of tricks. I typically fudge factor cap rate, 50 to 75 basis points. That's a pretty big swing. I'll typically fudge factor my refinance rate. And then I'll typically come a little low on rents, and then I never perform a rent growth above two percent. Just never do it. So those are four things, and then I'll obviously construction budget. I think it's hard to say. Oh, I I underestimate because I've never to this point. I've never performed a construction budget and then come in below. <laughs> I perform a construction mm-hmm. budget. Never so works. It never happens. <laughs> never <laughs> it never happened. And so yeah, th- those are the benchmarks. It's like, for instance, with Sacramento co-living property, we actually pro forma 20 beds. And we, once we got through planning, we knew we were going to get 21, but we were just like, it's not even pro forma. Let's just keep 21 as like an added bonus. We make it all the mm-hmm. way through planning approval and building department approval. We still have 21. We know we're going to, we're going to have an extra bedroom in there and it's going to push our pro forma up a little bit, two to 3% on an IRR basis. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question. you just kind of. Yep.
0: Yeah, it does. So keep, you mentioned value add a couple of times now. What other things are you doing to these properties to do that value add outside of making it a multi-use?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, we're piggybacking off of a an existing Craigslist model, roommate model, where, where people in high-density urban cores will get a three, four, five bedroom and sub it out to various roommates. That's, to me, that how co-living started and even beyond where Craigslist existed, right? People have been piling into larger format apartment buildings with kind of unknown characters or friends and so on for decades, right? So we're just, co-living just kind of takes the inefficiencies of how am I going to split utilities? How are we going to furnish it? And giving an application process where if you're an individual who's moving to a new city, it's very intimidating. I did that when I moved to San Francisco, going to interviews to get to rent a room from four or five people. And it can be a little awkward as well. So the co-living model of affordable by design micro apartments, you're effectively making it a more turnkey process for a potential renter. And you're also providing furnished common areas, kitchens. You're usually providing cleaning service. There's community amenities or st- bike storage so on and so forth. Some people, Open Door was hosting community events, furnished dinners, or first dinners, excuse me, providing dinners, cook dinners, having a chef come in from time to time, just to kind of continue to build a sense of community. On the value add side for these office buildings, we're doing a partial demo. So we're typically going in, we're stripping one side of a partition wall to make sure we can properly insulate and soundproof. We're redoing existing hardwoods or going over hardwoods or taking out ceilings. So again, we can work on sound transmission because in older buildings, that's a really big issue. Solid core doors, new trim work. We're typically demoing all baths and we're adding baths. So we're increasing bathroom count pretty significantly because ideally we would want to have no more than two people sharing a bath. And then for every kind of dwelling unit, which could be between four to six bedrooms, we want to have at least one en suite bath. So one individual will have their own bathroom that they don't have to share because you're, you can get a rent premium. So just like mm-hmm. you would in a multifamily where you have various floor plans and additional amenities, that's what you're trying to do with co-living. You're trying to diversify that. And yeah, beyond that, it's a pretty additional kind of value-add situation, upgraded kitchens, baths, all that stuff, new fixtures, the whole nine. And then I, on the energy efficiency side. We do low flow water fixtures. We're typically upgrading with higher density insulation, like foam insulation, high efficiency water heaters, HVAC. That's all the realm that I came from. And it makes a lot of sense on a co-living because you're as an owner, right? I'm paying utilities and we're just doing like a set utility charge to the So we're paying a lot of that. And there's, there's not like a direct bill. And that was the one thing we always understood in the inter- energy efficiency game is when someone else is paying the bill, people have a tendency to not care as much, right? As far as turning off lights and using water. And so by implementing those, we can reduce significantly reduce operating costs as well.
0: Sure. Okay. So I suppose this, especially, you talked about a lot of energy efficiencies. That's probably particularly of interest in these older historic buildings.
1: It's especially challenging. We, When I started my career in construction, that was a primary focus. And we started even doing research projects with a nonprofit down in Charleston, South Carolina. So I was down there on East Bay Street in Charleston from these beautiful Victorians doing these energy audits and looking at the complexities of how do we make this house more comfortable, improve air quality, subsequently improve efficiency as well as durability. And so I got a quick dose and my business partner at the time had spent a lot of time working in historical structures, literally doing full gut rehab jobs, rehabs of them in Charleston. So that was a really cool experience. And yeah, I think it gave the way for what we're doing now, where you can thread the needle with these buildings without kind of chopping them up too much and really starting to open up cans of worms with full-on gut rehabs. I just, I don't think it's really necessary. And a lot of these commercial office buildings, they've made substantial upgrades and improvements to them because they've been using them for quite some time as an office.
0: So can you talk a little bit about the process you go through in placing new residents?
1: Yeah, it's typically done by an operator right? We are going to self-perform on these initial co-living projects that we have. Open Door, some of the smaller operators. We we were in talks with a few people. I think some of the larger operators like Open Door and Common, they really won't do a market or a property until it's, they can get up to 50 to 100 units because they're trying to reach a level of scale with it. But yeah, so a lot of it's just going to be a traditional leasing process, right? Landing page, website, 3D modeling, basically trying to create a very seamless process for tenants where they can view a particular unit without having to go to it. And then we'll have placement agents or like an on-site person as well, who's going to basically be doing tours with everyone, interviews, so on and so forth. And obviously, as you're placing a bulk of your tenants, say you have three or four people, the interview process becomes a little bit more scrutinized as far as bringing in another individual and analyzing mm-hmm. personalities. And that's going to be, it's an inherent challenge, but obviously our idea Our goal in Denver specifically, and hopefully in Sacramento is to reach full scale, we can push off the operating side of it to a sophisticated co-living operator. And we're also in talks with some, some European co-living operators. I have, there's a pretty, there's a pretty well-documented process. I have Guy Peru's art of co-living here that I'll (laughs) give a shout out to Guy. There's, there's even software programs right now being developed in Europe for co-living operators. So. There's a much more experience and depth of knowledge that exists because this is an existing marketplace in, in Europe and well developed. And so I think we're confident in our ability to navigate those nuances. But yeah, that's our goal is to do it and then hopefully hand it off because I don't long term, we don't want to be a property manager. We just want to be a developer.
0: Yeah. I have a couple of multifamily properties and there's always drama, even in those types of scenarios and in those type of communities when you're in a co-living space i'd have to think that's amplified to a certain extent how do you the existing residents involved in picking their next roommate if you will yeah
1: again it's not arms linked because we're using operators in a lot of these cases my understanding of it is that there's always drama but yeah there is a meritocracy as far as decision making but you also have an on-site property manager and they pretty much call the shots Right. It's just like any other sure. property management company. And yeah, I can imagine there's always going to be trauma. I know that the general theme is that bad actors get pushed out very quickly. It was thing too, home. from what we've heard, because it's understood the situation in which you're in, people actually tend to be a little bit more considerate because it's there's no walls separating you, right? <laughs> like there's no, my mm-hmm. there is, there you have your bedroom, but the common areas that you share and that's where things like cleaning services and so on and so forth takes a lot of that drama out. It's not like, oh, hey, you've made this mess. You need to clean it up. Obviously, those things are expected, but I think people rise to the challenge of I need to be considerate of other people's space. And we also have this cleaning lady or cleaning person who comes in. Let's be respectful of them. And people rise to that challenge, I think.
0: So you, you get overall for the building, you get a higher rate of return because of the rents. Because of these other amenities that you're providing, whether it's cleaning service or a cook on occasion and a few other mm-hmm. things, is that allow you to charge a premium as well? Like the, some of the p- residents, they just don't want to clean and they don't want, they just still pay extra for that type of thing?
1: Yeah, I think it's a matter of, yeah, you're, you certainly have to program an additional operating cost. And my understanding is some of those activities are paid in activities. And it is just also sort of certain situations where If as a group or as a building, people are collectively hitting certain budgets, then those extra, those overages get pushed into the community amenity budget, and then they can kind of spend it how they see fit, right? Hire a cook, they could have an an artist come in and play some music or something, something that kind of engages, and they make that decision on it. And it's all based on like a performance of the property and certain maintenance and things and so on so forth. But yeah, as far as the per square foot, I think we, on average, are getting anywhere between a 20... I've heard of up to a 35% net operating premium over traditional multifamily because you do have a much more, a higher density product. So that, and and that kind of equates into, I think we underwrite anywhere between an extra five to 7% on additional OpEx. So if your traditional multifamily is 35, we're programming like 41, 42% uh, on operating expenditures.
0: Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So just to remind everybody again, head over to revive.com. That's R E dash Uh V.com. Learn what Matthew and his team are doing over there. Matthew, this has been a very interesting conversation. We could continue to go down a variety of avenues because I'd love to understand like some of the opportunity zones. You're dealing with commercial property. I'm sure you have to do some rezoning of those properties and we could just mm. keep going and going. But, um, but before i let you go you're first of all you're always welcome back if we want to deep dive into some of those other topics but i was going to ask you a few rapid fire questions if you will just to sure. get a little a know a little bit more about you so first of all you have a ton of instruments behind you <laughs> how long have you been playing guitar violin
1: yeah lately? yeah I've been playing guitar for, I wouldn't say seriously, more seriously on a recreational side for, I think, over probably 10 years. I bought that violin. A friend of a friend was actually, my daughter was interested in playing violin, and they had a woman whose husband had passed away. And so it just, uh, in the moment, it felt a good thing to do, so I bought that one. That hasn't gotten a lot of use. And then that's actually my daughter's ukulele. I started playing the ukulele a lot more when I had kids because it was just a fun, funny way to learn Raffi songs and other songs. And I know my, I know more Rafi on ukulele than I ever thought I ever would in my life. And so, yeah, that's probably four or five years on the ukulele. Sure.
0: Okay, the next question is, you can't use Rich Dad, Poor Dad as your answer. That's almost, since you're a musician, that's like playing Stairway to Heaven in a music store. It's not allowed. <laughs> yeah. What book would you recommend everybody to check out?
1: Yeah. So from an investment side of things, Howard Marks, the most important, I, mind you, I read rich dad, poor dad by recommendation. It hit me to the idea of real estate investment, but looking at it retroactively, I think it's not real estate is just a mechanism of investing, right? And so investing in itself has its own sense. It has its own kind of construct and mentality and strategy associated with it. And so I think it's really important for real estate investors to not just think about things within the context of real estate, but as an overall investment. And I talked about this in other podcasts and looking at macroeconomics, understanding monetary theory and how that affects things. What interest rates, the Fed interest rates, like very hot topic right now. And, and the, my favorite part about Howard, Howard Marks' book is like probably his most simple advice, which is the most the highest risk that you take in any investment is associated with the things that you don't Know, right? Like so, and that sounds so simple, right? Like how? Wh- what don't I know? And he dives into steps in which you can obviously mitigate those things and do your own research. And I think, especially in real estate, anyone who's been through it would tell you, like, yeah, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that was happening." And I just think his overall philosophy and investment strategy in the book to me was very profound and really resonated with me. And it resonated with me at a time where I had been incredibly conservative leading up to the pandemic and it bruised my ego a little bit and I felt like oh I'm not getting as many deals done I'm not a player we're not growing in the level and then when you look at when I read Howard Marks's book it reaffirmed my belief that I was unwriting incredibly conservative and I was passing on deals as an, as a result had I not done that then the pandemic would have hit. I had done all some of those deals that I passed on it would have fundamentally reshaped my career and it might have buried me right then and there. And so he really talks about playing that long game and being a contrarian. And you have to understand what that means. And I think those are really important lessons that resonate with me. I know that was a much longer answer. No, that's a,
0: that. that's a great answer. No, and it's obvious that book in particular has had an impact on you. So yeah, that's great. Yeah,
1: it's chock full of knowledge. It really is fantastic.
0: What is the best business advice you've ever received? Best
1: business advice that I've ever received. That's a tough one. I'd say the common thing that you hear a lot about is just building a resilience in yourself and confidence. I think especially in moving into the real estate space, there's a lot of bravado and there's a lot of people who are selling things and trying to create a lot of social media and appearing bigger than they are. And I think it can really be, it can be challenging for people who are trying to get going. There's this mountain that I'll never be able to climb. And so I think for people, the lessons in the books that I've read about people who have overcome struggles, and so there's always this reoccurring theme that they just stayed resilient and they just stayed true to their belief in themselves, not blindly, right? There's that. There's a very challenging balance there, but I think developing a confidence in your skill sets and what you do and having that emotional resilience to continue on and see your vision through, I think that's a really important thing that as entrepreneurs and investors that you really have to develop and it takes a lot of time and I think it takes a lot of self-reflection because early on you're just going to be littered with self-doubt I don't care how experienced you are to me real estate game syndication private equity if that's the level you want to get to it is tough, man. It is like one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I bootstrapped a construction company in 2010, coming out of the recession, right, with no experience. It's extremely challenging. So I just think building that kind of emotional resilience and that belief in oneself. It sounds really cheesy, but to me, that it's been it's been a six year journey. Something that I still I find myself doubting myself every day. And I have to kind of reaffirm, like. You got this. You've been right before. <laughs> you know, you'll be wrong tomorrow again. Have some confidence in yourself, believe in what you know and research what you don't know, kind of thing. Figure those yeah. things out.
0: No, that, that reminds me. I've always, every time I hear something like that, I picture that if you've seen that cartoon of that miner and he's digging and digging to the gold and he quits within inches of finding it. Yeah,
1: uh, absolutely, man. That's so cool. That's a good so, analogy. Yeah. And I think you always, life is funny in that regard right because sometimes you're a lot closer than you think you have to be incredibly objective and i think the objectivity comes into having a good support system i think that's the other key thing you got to have a good support you got to have that person in your life who's going to tell you what no one else will tell you but your wife girlfriend your partner a good colleague a mentor a coach you got to have someone who's going to cut through the bs and be like you know what dude you're not as close or you're not as good as you think you are or you're really weak over here. Or did you, are you seeing this coming? This is really going to hit you. And I think those are important things, that, important lessons and that you, you have to have a good foundation. If you don't, going at it alone, you're really struggle.
0: Yeah. And if you're aware enough to ask that type of question or seek out that type of person, being strong enough to take that type of feedback on board and actually listen to it and apply it if need be.
1: Yeah. That comes back to emotional resilience, right? I really, I think um, those lessons... Are a lot easier to digest than the hard lessons that the world gives you, right? Like the world lessons, the ones that just punch you in the gut and leave you for dead. Those are the ones that really hack away. Like having a good support system and people who will tell you those things maybe before they're coming, or you can see it that the world's a lot meaner place sometimes than a colleague or friend or partner. Yeah, I think it's a. It's really important to have that. I wouldn't be where I am today without that.
0: So on the flip side, what is the worst piece of advice you've heard?
1: I'll stick to real estate. I talked about this in another podcast. This kind of concept that if you find a good deal, the money will find you. And I think that really, it's argued on real estate Twitter. And again, for some people that may have worked, I think if you put a hundred people in a room and said that it worked for them and you dug through their stories and their nuance. They either had experience, they had the network, they were in the industry, they were in the game, right? They knew who the players were, they knew how to approach. But if you like, I literally started from scratch. I moved to San Francisco. I knew nobody on the West Coast, right? I had, and I'm still trying to build a network. The network that supported me in my capital structure was literally my family and friends in very small increments, no, not even as equity, as debt right the worst the worst kind of equity so to speak and i think that's a, just a bunch of nonsense and i think it lends people to take unnecessary risk in trying to get deals teed up yeah. i also mentioned like your due diligence you know however much time you have which mind you 30 days is not that long in the due diligence time frame 45 days is even still cutting it there's just so much to do and so much to uncover if you're literally trying to scramble to raise capital while doing it while trying to do your due diligence i think you're doing yourself a disservice you're going to miss a lot Mm -hmm. and you're just going to spread so much risk across the project that i think you're just going to get hammered that's why to me that first duplex that i did it was 1800 square feet 65 grand i bought it for it's hard to mess up right (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i had the cash right and starting small Mm -hmm. and simple and just if you want to learn it right which i if I had any recommendation for anyone, if you could, I would invest with a syndicate or a private equity company before you go out and try and do it on your own. Or if you wanted to try to go out and take that giant leap, start really small and condense yeah. because I think well, that's a kind of a fool's errand. You're
0: echoing something. I have these things that I call tip Tuesdays and I come on and on occasion it becomes a rant. And about a month ago now, I suppose, I went off on the whole concept of find the deal, the money will follow. I can't echo what you said enough on that. I think that's such lousy advice that I, I still, I, I put them on the same, I put it in the same category as the concept of real estate investing as get rich quick.
1: Oh, which is our whole industry. And if I, can I just add two quick things to that? Like, mm -hmm. so if you want to get, if you want to raise money and you're starting out early on, you have to sell people on the business plan. And you can do, well, we do a soft commit letter, right? It's like, we're going to push deals to you. We're a syndicator. We're not a fund. And you acknowledge that we've discussed how much money you're willing to invest and you're sold on the business model. So you like co-living. And then most people that come to me, like we pitch them on co-living. They're either in, they're out. And so you're getting handshake. Okay, send me a deal when you get it. And I think that's a really good step to close someone to build the pipeline and run numbers. Okay, if I've got 50 people, Two or three of them may commit when I finally send them a deal. Maybe not. You got to run your metrics and numbers. Talk to some experts in the field. The second piece to that is I'm very close to the venture capital world in the background. And I listen to a great podcast, All In podcast, that talks a lot about venture and capital raising and venture, right? Venture has been gutted, so to speak, right now. Okay. The easy days of raising capital on BS multiples for venture are over everyone's moving to fundamentals right all of a sudden cash flow and viability from product and service matter again right and so that's the other thing that you're if you're raising capital now the cream of the crop is going to raise the capital in the next two to three years right like even for someone for me we're thousand square feet of under management right now we've done we've raised over two 2.5 million in equity 2 million in, in debt we're st- but we're still young right there's guys I'm going to be really busting my hump to raise capital from a next round of LPs to do this next series of raises. And there's guys that are light years ahead of me that are just going to be having people stroke checks for them. And so you really have to look at where you're at in the capital markets and your ability to raise that capital based on your expertise and your business plan, because people are going to be even more, they're going to scrutinize you more now in the next two to three to four years than they ever have in the last 10. And that's another really important thing. That's where I was coming back to understand the macroeconomics, understand the larger picture and capital markets, that's that other layer that people really have to understand. If you're raising a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars from family and friends, not a big deal. You could probably do that. But if you're trying to do bigger deals and move up the ladder, you're gonna have a lot of challenges and fundamentals really are gonna matter. Yeah.
0: So. No, that's awesome. Okay, two more questions. Sure. You could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be?
1: I wouldn't say it'd be a piece of advice. Yeah. It would be I've always been a lone wolf. I'm just going to run through that brick wall. I'll make it to the other side or not. When I started my construction company, I left my family's business. I literally said to myself, and I thought about this yesterday, if I can just make it to profitability in this stage, doing like this kind of new thing in construction and a completely dismantled just broken economy, I can do anything. And literally what I was saying to myself, if I can run if I can climb Everest with no oxygen and no climbing skill, I can do anything. And where I really miss the boat, if I could talk to my, my team, I would have talked to more people. I would have spent the time getting coffee with experts and really nailing them down and getting more feedback, hiring more coaches. I've hired a few coaches over the years, which have, some of them have been really good. Some of them were kind of meh. I hired his fractional CEO probably six or nine months ago, 12 months ago. He had some medical issues. He had to depart. But he was a really integral part trust getting over this hump on the co-living. And so having those people with 15 to 20 years of experience, like I said, the people who cut through the BS, people can be like, yeah, you're doing it all wrong. I always just persevered and tried to figure it out. I just, it's just how I am. And I think that's some people say, oh, that's so entrepreneurial and great. It is, but it isn't. You make a lot of unnecessary mistakes. There's a lot of unnecessary brain damage. And as I've gotten older and supposedly wiser, I just find myself more and more reaching out to people that I know who have been there and asking those provocative questions and really getting into the dirty details versus just running out that brick wall again, trying to figure it out on my own. Because you just get to that point where you're just, you get exhausted by the brain damage, to be honest, and that continual pain <laughs> of the hard mistakes. And I'd say slow down a little bit, take your time, talk with people in the industry when I moved out here to try to continue to build my business in energy efficiency and green building, which is what I came to San Francisco thinking about doing, I met with the guy who had tr- raised venture capital and tried to grow and scale companies in the type of company that I was trying to do. And that 45 minutes that we sat down and had coffee reshaped my career trajectory. He laid it all out for me. He had done it all and had not succeeded and told, laid it all. And guess what? pivoted. I figured it out. I moved into pick up where I left off. That lunch alone could have saved me five to ten years of my life. Literally. And those are the powerful things that you got to explore.
0: Yeah. No, uh, again, awesome answer. Um, Well, before I let you go, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today?
1: I think that right now it's it's a little bit of a trite subject, but I think it's really... Kind of on what I was saying earlier, important to really start to talk about macroeconomics. Think about where we're going with interest rates, how that's going to impact the real estate space. Rents are at an all-time high. We've got very supply-constrained markets, but rent growth can't go much higher, can it? We don't know. And so I think in real estate, there's not enough conversation around these larger topics that are highly nuanced. And a little bit difficult to understand, but really not that difficult. And I would encourage you if you want to rap about it and go through it, I don't think I don't see it covered enough in real estate, or not. and I think those are the subject matter that I enjoy because I've also totally nerded out on that stuff. I've, I'm probably one of the few people I know who's actually read like Ben Bernanke's Dead Chairs. I read his book, it was, it'll it put you to sleep, but <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But I've been I, trying to are- get.
0: Through Thomas Sowell's some of Thomas Sowell's books too on economics, and that can get a little
1: yeah. Oh man, it's mind numbing. But it's really important to understand, and I think it's important to understand those things. And I'd say that'd be a cool subject matter that I'd love to come back and talk about, or press your press any real estate people on because I don't think we talk about enough in the industry. I think it's a it's a really important topic that people need to understand from a risk mitigation perspective.
0: Yeah, we have to. We're putting our heads in the sand if we don't realize that we can turn on a dime when it comes to. Increasing rents, stores, and corporations can turn on a dime and increase prices on goods. The one yeah. thing that is a far, far trailing indicator is that people's take home pay, that unfortunately isn't increasing at yeah. the same rate. And it's going to make things really hard.
1: Yeah. And I, what we've, what we did with modern monetary theory and zero interest rates, right? We just replicated what Japan has done and the European Union has done. For the last 25 years, this isn't a new experiment, right? It's a new experiment to the United States, right? Since going back to the global recession and even right. beyond that in 2005. So we're really in a new stage as far as where we go, right? It's the first time that the Fed has raised rates at this level in however many years, 15 years, 20 years, I think, or maybe no, 10 to 12. And we're still below historical rate, that quick job. You know it's going to have an impact, and we've yep. never faced inflation as well, right? That's You have to go back to the Volcker days, right? Of the eighties and the, and the late seventies, which so those are the things that I think are interesting that don't get talked about enough. But it's a really challenging subject, right? Yep,
0: yep. Yeah. We could, yeah, we could do a whole episode on that. I really appreciate your time, Matthew. One it more is my time. Revive dot com r e dash dot right. com. Please take a second, click on that link in the show notes, but really appreciate your time, Matthew. Hope to talk again really soon.
1: My pleasure, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into
0: your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.